Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 18th of July, and I'm Govindra Jaithiraj coming to you from a totally rained out Mumbai. Our top reports or themes of the day US exchange traded funds are now investing three times as much in India versus China. How 42% of corporate India's wage bill belongs to IT services companies. Action in the mattress space as Sleepwell buys Curlon. And news from Gandhinagar from Janet Yellen and Ajay Banga. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. Markets are at a record high once again. When it rains, it pours, goes the old cliche, and it surely applies to Mumbai where I am. Domestic benchmark indices were at a fresh record high on Monday. The BSE Sensex notched a new high of 66,656 in intraday trade before settling at 66,590, up 529 points, while the Nifty 52 hit a new record high of 19,732. It eventually settled at 19,721, up 157 points. A Bloomberg report said today that investors in U.S. exchange-traded funds favored Indian stocks more than any other countries last week as China's recovery turned sluggish. Inflows into funds that invest in Mumbai's listed shares totaled about $638 million in the five days to July 14th, while those buying Chinese equities received $223 million, Bloomberg said. Now, of course, one should not overextend these figures, but it's an interesting trend starter for sure. Elsewhere, HDFC Bank, the entity that now reflects the merger with mortgage major HDFC on Monday, reported a 30% jump in net profits for the quarter that ended on June 30th to 11,952 crores. The bank's net revenue grew 27% to 32,829 crore in the quarter as compared to 25,870 in the same quarter last year. The net interest income during the quarter was up 21% to 23,599 crores. The bank's gross non-performing assets rose slightly to 1.17%. As of June 30th, the bank's total advances were up almost 16% to about 16.5 trillion rupees. Significantly, the bank also crossed the $100 billion market cap figure to become the world's seventh largest bank in value. With a market value of over $151 billion, HDFC Bank is now the world's seventh largest lender and bigger than Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs and Bank of China in market value. Just to give you a background, earlier on July 13th, shares of HDFC were delisted from the bosses following the merger with HDFC Bank. HDFC shareholders, if you were one of them, got 42 shares of HDFC Bank for every 25 shares of HDFC they held. Now, like we pointed out in the core report earlier, we seem to be almost tiringly hitting new highs every day. As we go higher, of course, the quality gap between the headliners and the laggards becomes a little clearer, and which is where one should start worrying as perhaps about valuations. But before I go a little deeper into that, the overall bullishness, of course, continues. The Capital Group, which had once partnered with the Aditya Birla Group for financial services in the pretty early stages of liberalization and then left, has asked if India will be a breakout emerging market this decade. Note that it asks in this note and does not say so dated two weeks ago. It then provides all the usual reasons, which we've been listening to elsewhere and which everyone else has, and says that currently the market does look a little expensive by historical standards. It then adds that India has historically traded at a premium on a relative price-to-earnings basis, 
the MSCI India index trades at 20 times forward earnings versus its 10-year average of 18 times, it points out. Capitals analysts then say they believe the fundamental outlook for India is arguably better than ever. The market has a lot going for it. It's one of the world's fastest growing economies. Inflation is under control. The government has been fiscally responsible and corruption is lower than it was a decade ago. If Indian companies can deliver on earnings and cash flows, they think it's possible the market can grow into these valuations. So a few more ifs and buts if you ask me. I would think than some of the other investment banks, but of course bullish. Then, amongst other bullish candidates, Singapore's state investment bank, Temasek, says it will invest as much as $9 to $10 billion in India over the next three years. A bunch of executives told a clutch of newspapers yesterday. Temasek has already invested close to $2 billion so far this year, led by its investment in Manipal Health. Typically, in the last few years, Temasek's investments in India have touched around a billion dollars a year and its overall India exposure stands at around $21 billion on a mark-to-market basis, according to reports. Yes, so it can be tough to make sense of all this bullishness and try and understand where you could be investing if you were indeed investing. So I reached out to Prakash Devan, market veteran and director of Altamount Capital Management, to get his take on how he was seeing the markets at this level, what he liked and equally what he was concerned about. So I think very clearly the market is kind of bracing itself for some sort of an all-round move within, you know, the different segments of the market, which is all the micro caps, small caps, mid caps, as the large caps start kind of making new highs. So I think it's driven by broadly two vectors. One is, of course, liquidity. The FI is making a comeback of sorts. That's really been quite exciting for the market. And the second is, the earnings haven't been as dismal as we thought earlier. I think these two things explain the kind of excitement or exuberance as we scale new highs on the indices at least. And, you know, until about a month or so ago, most global banks were issuing fairly bullish reports on India. And I guess the bullishness continues, but now there are valuation warnings that are coming in saying that, you know, things might be a little stretched. Where are you on that? That's quite understandable. I mean, we we always have this, you know, you have the love for China by global banks and then China disappoints and then suddenly India starts looking promising and then Indian valuations start getting stretched and you'll probably have a pause there. My sense is earnings in India haven't yet started losing that kind of an advantage. I mean, you have, let's say, the Nifty EPS estimates. They haven't got revised very badly downwards, I would say. I mean, they've been tempered a bit. But at 1,000, 1,030, uh, you still have the Nifty trading at, you know, forward basis at least about 18, 19 times, which is not really very stretched. But my worry is more on the froth below the indices uh, good. I mean, it's the smaller companies that are getting lapped up. There's less quality paper, more money chasing those names. And that kind of elevates the prices to a stage where the risk reward is not usually very favorable. So you're saying the broad market is something that we should be concerned about more than the headliners. That's true. That's true. I mean, and, and specific pockets. I mean, you look at defense. I mean, everybody wants a piece of defense. Everybody wants a piece of the capex uh, or the capital goods. They say everybody wanted a piece of the auto sector where the moment started revving up. So you you have this rush and uh, this thing, you know, gush for money, liquidity, chasing just a few pockets. It's not really broad based, you know. So uh, look at IPOs. I mean, some of these IPOs are clocking uh, huge, huge, they're collecting huge numbers. You know, the kind of quantum of money collected in IQs is staggering. I mean, for, you know, the likes of Idea Forge, you had uh, Sign DLM. So, you know, it tells you that there is a lot of money sloshing around and that 
always leads to a few bubbles in some of these uh, segments. So, as you look ahead, what are you bullish about and what are you concerned about? I would definitely believe, you know, Q1 earnings will be a very good indicator of how resilient, uh, you know, some of the business models are, be it IT, be it the banks, you know, be it some of the capital goods names. The government is the biggest spender today. I mean, the government has the biggest checkbook in town and anything that has the advantage of government spend, whether it's railways or defense or telecom, I think those are areas that you will still find some value in more downstream names rather than the frontline names. What I mean by that is if, let's say, if HL gets a big order, who are the vendors that HL would subsequently get work from? Those are the ones to look at. So I, I'm looking at uh, second order, third order advantages uh, within the listed space rather than the frontline name. The worry part, the, what I would be cautious about is some of these small cap, micro caps tend to get very excited, you know, the counters are very live, but suddenly liquidity dries up uh, with the turn of events, which is unfavorable. So you could get stuck holding a lot of paper that uh, you might not be able to exit from. Do you feel that many promoters are also getting out and that may not be a good sign? Oh, yes, that's the other important point. There's a lot of promoter selling that's happened. Of course, the good news is a lot of that paper has got absorbed. But insider selling is always an indicator of things to come uh, within those businesses. I mean, you have names like Root Mobile, which uh, had a strategic uh, exit completely. I mean, this doesn't happen if uh, the business continued to be so promising. I mean, I'm not complaining that why would the promoters do it? They have their own reasons. But promoters know businesses, uh, their own businesses better than any of us. And at that point, you need to kind of ask yourself whether why are you buying into something which a promoter is exiting? Right. Right, Prakash, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. India's IT sector takes home a lion's share of compensations. Did you know that more than 40% of all compensation in India, Inc. goes to the Indian IT sector? I'm sure that you would do some math backwards and forwards and conclude that it was possible. But I must admit that I was surprised by the figure. Not by the fact that IT folks are paid well, as they should be, but what this says about the rest of Indian industry and its ability or the lack of it to attract talent. For listed companies, the exact figure is 42%, which is the weightage of IT services in the private corporate sector bill in India. In terms of numbers, the IT BPO industry share of organized segment workforce is 12%, while it's only 1% of the overall workforce in India. The compensation share now looks quite large in this context. The growth in private sector wages also represents the formalization of the economy, though in overall terms, the formal workforce is still around 10% of the overall workforce, so 90% is in what we call the unorganized sector. The overall corporate sector wage bill has been rising over the years and is now 13% of GDP. On the other hand, did you know that it is only now that private corporate sector wages have overtaken public sector corporate wages and the private bill stood at about 30 trillion rupees compared to the public sector wage bill of 28 trillion rupees. All of this is just out from an ICICI securities report that looks at compensation in the economy with a larger and important objective to try and understand what we could interpret in terms of potential spending and consumption. Now, a quick refresh on the overall distribution of jobs in India, if you wanted to know. Agriculture has 46% of all jobs in the country, followed by construction at 12.4% and hospitality and trade at 12.1%. So these are the top three employers in India. 
Going ahead and going back to that report, IT could possibly shrink a little in terms of its contribution to wage bill. And sectors like manufacturing, trade, hospitality, and construction could take over and rise, being the laggards of the previous decade. So to now understand what triggered this report and also the macro view on these insights and findings, I reached out to Vinod Karki, equity strategist at ICICI Securities and one of the authors of this report. There have been so many questions around uh, consumption and how rural consumption and overall consumption is moving. So naturally, the genesis of any consumption is what's the income. So that was the endeavor to find out how the incomes and the wages growing across urban, rural, and various sectors. That was the idea, basically. So the interesting thing about the survey is you're saying that the total private sector compensation in India has just overtaken public sector compensation. So all of this is news, to me at least, that private sector compensation was below public sector and that now it's overtaken and uh, that public sector was so high. So, you know, the... Formal sector in India has actually been quite low in the past. And of late, I mean, if you look at any number, be it this number that we have published or the way the EPFO reports on the additions to the net additions to the EPFO numbers or the number of tax filings that we're getting or the tax buoyancy from income tax, all are suggesting that uh, the formalization effect is taking effect in the economy. So, just to give you a perspective, in the US, the compensation of employees from the private corporate sector is as high as 40% plus, basically. And we are just reaching 13%. And if you see that trend line that we have drawn in the report, it's clear that uh, it's a structural trend and it's going to keep trending up well past the public sector. Uh, in the US, actually, surprisingly, the public sector, again, is closer to that 10% of GDP number that we currently have. So what it means that over a period of time, the share of uh, the wage bill will significantly come from the private corporate sector while the public sector will stand in. And uh, uh, the other interesting thing is that uh, almost 42% of the entire wage bill is actually information technology services. Well, if you take the sample uh, from uh, the listed corporates, it is around that. But if you look at the overall private corporate sector also, it is actually closer to 40% or so it's a very large sum which moves the needle for India's private corporate sector wage bill. So that's a worry that we have mentioned that uh, the way we have seen slowdown in hiring in uh, IT services, maybe the wage growth will also be not be great. Both these effects might uh, result in uh, this part of the private corporate sector underperforming. Going by latest trend, it may revert. But the good news is that the other part of the economy, which have been languishing for almost a decade, which is your construction, industrials, and others, basically the old economy, that's actually really picking up because we have been highlighting that the KPIC cycle in India has just about started picking up. And uh, along with that, the other uh, sectors, which are like, you know, the hospitality, travel, tourism, all these entertainment, and these are also coming back strongly after the pandemic problems. So, you know, the EPFO data, that's Employee Provident Fund, which is used as a proxy to determine or uh, put a number on how many people are working in India's formal sector, which is only about 10% and the balance 90%, uh, I would imagine, is informal. Now, the chart that you have 
says that there were about 14 million net additions to EPFO. But what's the total number, uh, you know, then what is the what is the overall trend that we are seeing? Yeah, so we don't have the total number from EPFO, but uh, if you look at the breakup, see the overall workforce is close to, I think, 55 crores odd in India. So 10% of that, 10-11% of that will be the formal sector, which will be around 6 crores, I guess, uh, 5.5 crores. So that's the total, you may say, the population of uh, the formal sector workforce. The wage bill that this group earns is growing faster than nominal GDP. That's what we are trying to say, that this part of the economy is growing faster than the nominal GDP. Uh, that's why its share as a percentage of GDP went from 9% in 2012 to 13%, which is overtaking the public sector. Right? And coming to now what this all means in terms of consumption, propensity to spend and so on, how are you seeing it today and how are you seeing it a little ahead as well? So at the foremost, and which the government has also been saying and which has been proven empirically is that in the economy, if the demand is coming initially from the CAPEX cycle, then CAPEX has a two and a half times multiplier effect on demand. So as I said, XIT, where we see some issues, I don't think that's going to contract. It's only going to grow slower. And the bulk of the sector where it's attached to the agree output. So we are having very severe weather season so far, which can potentially take its toll on agriculture output. So barring these two sectors broadly, which is IT and the startup ecosystem, which has gotten shaken off late, and the agri output related uh, sectors, the rest of the economy going by how CAPEX plays out in terms of multiplier effect on demand, we think that the demand will continue and we may have that A-shaped recovery for some time. I mean, unless the agriculture output and the overall rural economy that we have been mentioning that uh, there is some weakness over there in terms of wage growth, uh, that doesn't pick up. But the rest of the economy looks good, IT, where there are some question marks right now. But uh, we don't see any contraction over there, any uh, major contraction, but the growth rate will not be as we have seen over the past few years. And you also pointed out, uh, which of course is from a government study, that uh, average income of a salaried person in rural India has stagnated at about 14,700 rupees a month for the last uh, 18 months. And I guess this is known through other ways, but do you see any problems with this dichotomy and that affecting anything? Uh, yeah, so naturally, I mean, that's what the worry I just spoke about. I mean, rural is largely agriculture. And uh, if there are already some risks to angry output because of uh, very severe weather conditions, that remains a key risk. But thankfully, if you see about the casual laborers in the uh, rural area, which are dependent on construction activity, those kind of activities are related to investment cycle. There, even in the rural area, reasonable amount of pickup. It's only the general salary, you know, uh, in the rural area, which is stagnating, it seems. Right, Vinod. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Govind. And there's action in India's mattress space. Some years ago, I visited the shop of a leading mattress retailer in Mumbai, who also happens to be a friend. Looking at my prolonged indecision over a mattress in the context, of course, of the price, he asked me why. I said, why what? 
He said, why would you spend so much time thinking about something you will spend anywhere between one third to one half of your life on? That clinched it for him, obviously. So it is with some regard that I looked at a major acquisition in the mattress space announced yesterday by the country's largest manufacturer. Sheila Foam, India's largest home mattress manufacturer, acquired rival Curlon Enterprise, the maker of Curlon mattresses, at a valuation of 2,150 crore and took a roughly 95% stake. It also purchased a controlling stake in a furniture rental company, Furlenko, the company said in a release filed with stock exchanges. The acquisition of Curlon is expected to be completed before November 2023. Curlon Enterprises is a privately held company owned by the Pai family based in and around Bangalore and had a revenue of around 808 crores last year, according to the Economic Times. It's a flagship brand of the House of Keraya or HOK, a startup based in Bangalore, founded by Ajit Mohan. The acquisition of Curlon will help Sheila Form create a more strong pan-India presence the latter is strong in the north and west markets, while Curlon dominates the south and east zones. Noida-based Sheila Foam is strong in foams, while Curlon focuses on rubberized coir. The Indian modern mattress market is valued at around 18,000 crore rupees last year and expected to grow around 10% annually in the next few years. The market is fragmented, which is not surprising, and organized players account for about 40% in the last year, but that share has been growing steadily. Now, here's the part that's interesting. The Sheila in Sheila form is Sheila Gautam, who set up the company in 1971 and has been in and out of politics as a BJP member of parliament for four consecutive terms from 1991 to 2004 from Aligarh in Uttar Pradesh. She died in 2019. The company's Sleepwell brand was launched in 1993 and has been going upstream with manufacturing via some 14 factories in India, Australia and Spain and downstream with partnerships and alliances since then in India and in other parts of the world. The company Sheila Foam is now run by her son, Rahul Gautam, who has a degree in chemical engineering from IIT Kanpur and a master's degree in science from the Polytechnic Institute of New York. Curlon, the company it is buying, started a few years ago before in 1962 and was established as Karnataka Coir Products, the first plant opened in Bangalore to produce rubberized coir mattresses. And news from Gandhinagar, where the G20 is on. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said yesterday that restrictions being crafted by the Biden administration on outbound investments to China would be narrowly targeted and would focus on a few sectors, in particular semiconductors, quantum computing and artificial intelligence. Yellen said this in Gandhinagar in Gujarat in an interview to Bloomberg Television. She is here along with heads of finance and central bank governors of G20 nations. These would not be broad controls that would affect US investment broadly in China or, in my opinion, have a fundamental impact on affecting the investment climate for China, Ms. Yellen said. Elsewhere, newly elected World Bank President Ajay Banga, also in Gandhinagar for the G20 conference, said he was more optimistic about India today as a whole than he has been for a long time. He also said that the world economy was in a difficult place, but India has outperformed what everybody has thought. But that won't mean that there won't be challenges. The former chairman of card giant Mastercard also said that countries should look beyond economic forecasts. The IMF forecast, the World Bank forecasts are that the world will get a little challenging over the next year or so. I said in a speech this morning that forecast is not equal to destiny. We can change destiny and that's what we should think of right now, Banga told the media according to the report in website BQ Prime. 
He also said that we needed to bolster these lagging private sector flows. We all have been talking about private capital flows that should somehow flow miraculously into all these places. We haven't done a very good job, he said at an event in Gift City, Gujarat. He also drew attention to municipal financing at the city level, which he said is key to India's progress in urban areas. A lot of cities in India are very creditworthy. They may not have the data to present it in a form that enables private investors to comprehend the creditworthiness of that city. That's it for me for today. Have a great day ahead and do send in your feedback as always to govindraj at thecore.in or on LinkedIn or Twitter. And also let us know if you want to be part of a Telegram broadcast list so you can get alerted to the podcast the moment it's uploaded. Have a great day ahead. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>